what if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life. With over 100 episodes and global recognition featuring Olympic athletes, business and culture leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you achieve your potential and be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Fida Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 118, I'm speaking with Anil Sabrawal. Thank you for your feedback to date. I'm glad you're enjoying the episodes, and this one's coming in hot. Despite the huge impact Anil's had on the world, he doesn't do many of these, so this is a rare opportunity to get inside his story and mind. Learn about his sunrise in Canada with Indian roots and reflections on his early influences and leaving home at age 17. You're going to learn about Anil's 10-year startup career prior to joining Google, moving to Australia with his wife, and a deep dive into his Google story. For context, Google has nine products with more than a billion users, and Anil has helped build and lead three of them. Google Chrome, Google Photos, and Google Drive. And we cover everything from what he specifically did to get these roles, managing a distributed team around the world, world-class product building, and the key metrics that matter the most. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Anil Sabrawal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I know you don't do many of these things, so I really appreciate your time. And and you know what? It's really nice to have a guest with a last name that sort of rhymes with mine. <laughs> it's very nice to speak with someone who can correctly pronounce it. <laughs> I mean, I've got a name that ends, I've got, I think, four of the seven letters of yours that are same. So <laughs> let's, let's start with some fun facts, Anil, to set this scene. Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in Montreal, Canada, and I currently live in beautiful Sydney, Australia. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now? Uh, well, my first job was making and selling bootleg VHS recordings while I was at primary school. Uh, I think I was in year three and I'd rent movies from the local blockbuster. I'd come home, I'd record them, and then I'd rent them out to my classmates. Um, so I amassed quite the catalog and it was a pretty lucrative business, actually. Um, I think of it today as my first foray into entrepreneurship <laughs> Um, but my first legal job uh, was uh, as a telemarketer. Uh, I can't say I'm too proud of that one either, to be honest, but I am very proud of what I do now, uh, which is as a vice president of product at Google. Mm, and we'll get into both those things as part of this conversation. And Anil, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. And is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? There, there are a number of folks who come to mind, um, but I think there are two individuals in particular I work with at Google that I'd like to mention, um, Tabitha Bertrand and Stephanie Boardman. Uh, both are incredibly talented leaders um, who've made a huge impact in their careers. Uh, Tab's in a sales leadership role. She was previously at LinkedIn and now at Google. Uh, Steph in her role uh, now is the site lead for Google Australia, um, where she's responsible for driving our culture and our employee programs. Uh, and I highlight both of them for one, for the reason that you asked, which is high flyers who haven't received the recognition for the really amazing work that they've done. Um, but the other is as a reminder that unconscious bias and the glass ceiling are still both very real things for women um, in our industry. And, and Tab and Steph are two of the smartest, capable people I know. And I've seen firsthand the challenges they faced in progressing their own careers. Um, and I'm pretty certain they'd be even more successful in their careers and you'd be talking to them, not me today, um, if they'd been given some of the same opportunities and afforded as I've had. You mentioned Montreal, Canada, and I think you're a really interesting person because we touched on earlier, your name is Indian, Indian heritage, Canadian accent, but you live now in Sydney. So it's a melting pot of culture. But if we go back to your sunrise, Anil, what are your memories of Montreal and the influence of family? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I had a fascinating childhood. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, it was really positive, And I have a very, very fortunate upbringing. Um, but I'd highlight a few things, which is, you know, first and foremost, as you said, my parents are originally from India. They immigrated to uh, Canada, not only just Canada, but French Canada, 
Uh, and so you can imagine language was a challenge where English was a second language, but French was something that they'd never spoken in their entire lives. And so they initially struggled when they first moved there. And when I was born, they focused um, almost to a fault at making sure that I fit in and spoke French and spoke English and only spoke uh, French and English to me at home and pushed me to, to uh, be really part of the Canadian and French Canadian culture. Um, and that allowed me to succeed in many ways because I became fluent in both languages and I, and I could do well in that respect. But on the other hand, um, it also made it very difficult for me from an upbringing perspective because you know I looked like an Indian, um, but I acted like a French Canadian. So the Indian folks didn't want to hang out with me and want to be my friends. And the French Canadian folks didn't want to hang out with me and be my friends. So it was, it was definitely a bit of a challenge for me. Um, and then when I think about my parents specifically, who both obviously have been a really big influence on me. Um, so my dad was very much the traditional disciplinarian uh, Indian of the household. So he was from uh, British India. So he was from what is now Pakistan, but at the time was India. And he, uh, his uh, father was a very successful businessman and then had sort of that unfortunate refugee story that one day, yeah, you know, the turmoil existed between Pakistan and India and they got sort of put on a truck and, and sent out to India where my, uh, my grandfather went from being the successful businessman to essentially running a food cart in the middle of the streets. And, and so for my dad, this idea of education was, was really important and really focusing on being able to do something with your career and, and, and being successful. Uh, he was a civil engineer, uh, one of the only in his family to go get a university degree. And he was very much that person that if I came home and I got a 98% on my math exam, he'd sit me down and he'd, uh, he'd talk me through where did I lose those 2% and what did I do wrong? Um, and I was told I could be anything in the world I wanted to be uh, as long as that was a doctor or an engineer. Those were my two <laughs> options. Um, so I actually wanted to be a lawyer and an architect, but uh, but I, my, my dad wasn't supportive of either, which is why I, I ended up in computer science, but I also uh, ended up leaving the house at 17 because I, I rebelled against my, my dad in that respect. Um, my mom was a brilliant woman, master of economics, uh, worked at the Central Reserve Bank of India. Uh, but once my brother was born, he's about seven years older than I am, uh, she decided to stay home. So that was really lovely to have that uh, opportunity to grow up with a parent at home all the time. Uh, and my mom sort of you know, loved me to a fault, which is anything I wanted to do, she would let me do. So I kind of got away with a lot uh, in the household. And that was an interesting contrast with, with my dad. And um, I guess the final thing I remember from that childhood and that upbringing, and I guess we'll talk about sort of the career aspect in a second, but you know, uh, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do and, and uh, the things that I was passionate and interested in. And I wasn't you know, I didn't have a lot going for me as a kid. I wasn't athletic. I didn't have a lot of friends, um, but I was naturally smart. That, that was my one gift. And, um, so, you know, for as long as I can remember, I've had a really good memory and I've been able to easily learn and apply new concepts. Um, and so that meant I basically could do almost no work and put in no effort at school. Uh, and I would actually do really well. And uh, another lesson that I unfortunately learned very, very late in my uh, upbringing was the importance of hard work, because as a kid, I really didn't do any hard work, uh, but I still did really, really well. And, you know, and that, that came back to haunt me uh, many times in my future. But that, that's, that's sort of my, my uh, childhood in a nutshell. I wonder how much of that was being the youngest child. I've got a younger brother and he got away with so much stuff that I would never, even now, he's four years younger, that I would get away with. So I wonder what your brother would say to the definition of hard work. Very, very much so. And my brother was the model Indian child. He listened to everything <laughs> that my parents said. I very much was the complete opposite and I rebelled. And I think by having that older brother, I had a little bit of a glimpse into what my future was. And I thought, well, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to follow mom and dad in that way. I don't want to have, you know, this career path. I, I want to be able to date women. I want to be able to go out and party and, and, and drink and with my friends while I'm in university. So there was a lot of that. I think you're absolutely right that uh, perhaps as the youngest, you get away with a lot more. I'd be curious, Anil, on your point about Indian heritage. That's one that I connect to. I think when I saw so I was born in India and I moved to Australia, I was in about, about I was about 10 because that expanded his business. And when I was young, I struggled to understand my identity. I think to your point where when you're in a Western society, you, at least I did, try to fit in. And now as I get older, I connect more to my Indian heritage and, and I don't have kids yet, but when I do, I want them to 
have some connection. And mum always says, she makes jokes saying that, oh, you're, you're kind of westernized, you're the westerner in India and you're the Indian in, in, in a Western society. And I go, yeah, that's right. And maybe you relate to that. What are your reflections? And I know you've got a couple of kids now and we're sort of jumping around here, but how do you look at that connection to Indian heritage as you've grown older in life? I mean, there are so many aspects of it now that influence who I am and, and kind of my journey as I think about sort of this next stage of my life. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of elements that I wish I learned about when I was a younger child, because it's a lot harder to sort of adopt a culture and a heritage when you're in your 40s for the first time and go, oh, I'm Indian now. Let's go see how that works out. Uh, and so I think trying to instill some of that into my children was really important. I remember having this moment where my kids uh, had, a, uh, had to dress up to go to school on the basis of their, of their heritage or their culture or their nationality. Mm. And uh, they would have been probably, you know, seven and five at the time. And they said, okay, cool. So should we be Australian or Canadian? And my wife said, or Indian. And they went, why would we be Indian? And then in another moment where we were at the airport and they saw a group of Indian people get on a plane and they said, oh, they must be going to Canada. Because to (laughs) them, that was the construct of that race and that skin color and it was associated with Canada, not India. So I maybe it's a long way of me saying I don't think I've done a very good job uh, myself in terms of really leaning into my Indian heritage, and then also with my children. But it is—it's become a concerted effort now for me as as my children, who are now um, practically fourteen and twelve, are kind of getting to this next stage of their life to make sure that they have a little bit more of that upbringing and a little bit more of a knowledge of their heritage and their background than I did. And having them even just spend time with the grandparents actually is a really important part of that. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't that funny how kids sort of reimagine culture in such a unique way rather than boxing it into geography? So that's fascinating. The the other part, Anil, that I think is evident in our conversations and, and you were kind enough to connect me with some people that are close to you to help with research and everyone spoke about this sense of confidence and inner security that you have. And I think I've sensed that as well talking to you where you don't have this desire to prove to others that, hey, look at me, this is who I am. Even on social media, your last activity was over a year ago. Does that come from your childhood or your parents where you have that inner security? Because I struggle with that. I need I need approval from others and I want kind of um, connection to others, whereas you seem very content with who you are and, and how you are. Does that connect back to your childhood in any way? I, I don't know. If there, was, there was a moment in my childhood, and again, we may talk about this in another way when we talk about sort of impactful moments in our lives. Um, but I was a terrible kid. I was, you know, think of the worst possible child you could think of, and I was 10 times worse. I would go, if my parents would take me to a friend's house, I would literally take chewing gum and stick it on everyone's furniture. (laughs) I would just, you know, I was just, I would always want to rebel and almost made a sport out of upsetting my parents. And um, we're a very, very small family. So it's my brother and then my two parents. We were living in Canada, and then I really don't know my extended family that's in India. And so uh, for a period of time, my dad had his mother, two brothers and sister living with us. Um, and the eight of us were in a van traveling from Montreal to Toronto and we were in a car accident. And um, my father's entire family passed away in that accident. So his mother, uh, two brothers and sister. And our family, we all survived. My dad had his seatbelt on, so he was fine. Um, I was the next one who sort of got the sort of the least harm. I was thrown out the back of the windshield of the car. So I have a scar on the back of my head and I broke my collarbone. Um, My brother lost sort of a large part of his arm, but was able to get that fixed with plastic surgery. And my mom broke her back, um, but again, was able to have that fixed and wore a brace for a little bit. But kind of you fast forward a year or two later and it was like, everything was fine. I had my little nucleus family, nuclear family, and then everything was fine. And I, um, I think back to that because you would think that was gonna be a turning moment for me and it wasn't. I was as bratty and as terrible of a kid right after that moment as I was before. And I remember almost vividly how selfish I was as my father is going through this. And I was trying to be like, where are we going on vacation? What's for dinner? Why can't I go to my friend's house and play? And it was just, it was a moment for me that I kind of, I don't know when it occurred, but I know that I reflected back on that some point during my teenage years. And I just realized that I just want to be a different person. And I, I read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People from uh, Stephen Covey, and I just it sort of kind of resonated with me. And I just made a decision 
I'm going to be who I want to be. I am going to be a person that I'm proud of being. And the only person that matters in terms of my own validation is going to be myself. And I just need to look in the mirror and be proud of who I am and how I behave. And I had this sort of 180 uh, somewhere when I was around 14 or 15 years old. And I think that, so I do think my childhood influenced it, but not in a way that I know exactly what the moment was or why. I just know that I reached a point where I had a realization that life was, was about the people you care about, about the moments that matter, and about trying to be a good person and derive happiness in every possible way possible. And all of these external validations, all of these other things of, of what other people think and sort of sharing your highlight reel so that other people, you know, sort of can go, oh my God, I wish I had, like, these things I've realized, they just, they don't matter. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that's been me ever since I'm a teenager, but so, but I don't know, I can't pinpoint how that happened. What was success at 18 for you, Anil? Well, I was in, uh, I was in my second year of university and actually I was very much trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to be when I grew up because I was put into a program that I didn't really want to be in, in, in computer science and engineering, but I would sort of, my dad told me this was the other option. I couldn't stand blood. So doctor was out of the question. So this was literally my only option. And um, I was surrounded by people who not only were really good at software programming, but who loved it. So we would go to class and then class would finish and I'd be like, all right, so where are we going? We're we going to the pub. We're going to get a beer. We're going to play some pool. We're going to go out and do some softball. And they're like, no, I'm going to go home and I'm going to program. And I'm like, but we didn't get any homework. And they say, yeah, yeah, but I just want, I'd like to do it for fun. And so I quickly realized that this wasn't for me. And I had um, an economics professor that I uh, credit a lot of sort of my sort of figuring out my path to a gentleman by uh, the name of Larry Smith. And he, he said to me, the worst advice that people give you is to figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are, and then spend time developing your weaknesses so that you get better at them. He said, the smartest thing you can do is figure out what your superpower is and just invest all your time and effort at being the best in the world at that thing. And then surrounding yourself with people that are really good in the areas that you're weak. And the analogy he drew, which, you know, being from North America made a lot of sense. He said, you know, if you think of a baseball pitcher in the major leagues, that baseball pitcher isn't coming into the practice every single day and trying to hit and become a really good hitter because he's not a very good hitter. He knows that he can't win a single game without the team scoring points, but his responsibility is to be the best pitcher in the world. And that's all he's ever going to focus on at practicing. So when I was 18, I was starting my journey of a number of internships across different uh, opportunities while I was at university. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be. So I started as a software developer and then I moved into you know, hardware and, and retail sales. And then I moved into uh, consulting and then I moved into marketing. And then eventually I found product management, uh, which was sort of this, this nice combination of where I felt my superpowers were. Um, so 18, I don't know if it was, it was what success was, but it was definitely very much me still trying to figure out who I wanted to be when I grew up. I think what's interesting about your story when I was researching for this is I think you had a 10-year or maybe 15-year career prior to Google. And you, like you said, you'd done different things. You'd started your own business. I won't go into each of those things because we'll spend hours talking about it. But are there any any learnings or highlights from those companies you built, whether it's learnings that you've applied or learnings about your own personality that, that helped you with your career as you went into Google? D definitely. And I think the old adage of you learn more from your failures than your successes is very much true in my life as it is for most people. You know, I think I learned, so university was fantastic for me and my internships were fantastic because it helped me learn that, okay, there's a thousand things I'm terrible at, but there's three things I'm good at. Number one, I'm really good at figuring out what people want. So like, what should we build and have painting a vision for that? Two, kind of building, inspiring, leading, motivating teams. I always have had the ability to bring people together and get the best out of them. And, and three, which really isn't in a power, it's just it's, um, uh, something that you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do, which is just make decisions. And for the most part, make good decisions and do so quickly so that you kind of unblock. And if you're from the corporate world as well, that it, you know that how, how challenging and frustrating it can be if, when things take a long time to actually progress and make calls, right? So these were the three things I realized by the time I was 21 years old and graduating that I was good at. And I thought, well, what's the best thing to do but start a company? 
so I can control my fate. And I uh, co-founded an online education company um, with uh, someone that I was uh, living with, and uh, it did really well. And in fact, it did phenomenally well to the point that I said, oh, this is great. I, um, you know, I don't really love online education. I don't really want to live in this sort of Waterloo, Canada place. I want to try some other things. But this startup thing is a piece of cake. And I then went on to sort of build three or four startups uh, that all massively failed. And uh, it was very, very humbling. And when I reflect back on it, it was definitely a lot of arrogance. Sort of having your only success be your first success is uh, not a great thing because it sort of makes you feel like you can just continually have a series of successes. But after the fact, I kind of got humbled by that and realized that you know it's incredibly important to listen to people and sort of take into account different points of view around expertise and knowledge. And, and I think that's helped me in this now next stage of my career at Google, um, where I realized that my superpower actually wasn't making decisions where the decisions were my decisions or what I thought was right, but actually listening to a bunch of inputs and being able to make the right decision where far more often than not, the decision is actually someone else's idea. But really, my responsibility is to try to figure out what is the best decision and then go ahead and make that. And so that was a really important learning for me kind of in the early stages of my career before I joined Google. Now, I understand you joined Google in 2009, but if we go back three years, 2006, I believe that's when you moved to Australia. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I was living in Vancouver and uh, I was at a startup, not mine, but one that I joined very early on. I think I was employee seven or eight. I was leading uh, product business and sales for that organization in the graphics space. And uh, I met Jess, who was uh, an Australian on a traveling holiday. Uh, and she... Uh, and can I say on that, she tells me that you had a commanding, charismatic presence at work. That's what won her over. <laughs> yeah, so, so perhaps that, that's, that's a nice way of saying I was naive and ignorant. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, I, uh, uh, it was great. She... Uh, she landed in Vancouver and ended up uh, taking a temp job uh, at the company that I was working at. We met that way. I managed to convince her to stick around Canada for a couple of years. Uh, and then we got engaged. And then she said, okay, great. I showed up here to Canada with a backpack. And it's been a couple of years. Now we're going to move to Australia. And I, uh, I couldn't get a refund on the ring. So I thought, okay, <laughs> well, I guess we're going through with this thing. Uh, and she did a wonderful job on selling me. We, we flew into Sydney. And for those of you listening who've, who've been to Sydney, you'll know it's an incredibly majestic city. And uh, we flew in. Her, her stepdad uh, was a water taxi driver. So we got out on the boat under the Harbor Bridge by the Opera House, pulled into the harbor, got some lunch, champagne on the back. And I thought, okay, I, I can live here. I think, uh, I think this, is, this is a pretty majestic place. So I... Uh, yeah, we packed up the bags and uh, we moved out to Australia in 2006 and got married in 2007. And Anil, when you joined Google in 2009, if I'm getting my years right, if you go back in time, how would you describe your, where were you at in your career? Would you say you were on the senior side and you'd built up these skills or would you still consider yourself junior? Because you'd built these startups and they, in your words, weren't successful. How did you, what kind of identity did you have in your own mind going into Google? It's a, it's a fascinating question. It's because um, the reality was very different from what I had in my mind. If you looked at my resume, you would say, here's a person who's had five or six different jobs in the last seven or eight years, for the most part, companies we've never heard of and uh, companies that have not done very well. And so definitely very junior. Uh, for me, I felt like I'd done it all. I'd done every role from capital raising to CEO to product engineering to sales to marketing. I built teams. I had to figure out how to pay employees when we didn't have enough revenue coming through the doors. I built products from scratch. I'd sold the government. I'd sold the enterprise. I'd built consumer. Like I felt I had amassed all these amazing skills. I just, you know, some combination of bad luck and uh, just, you know, bad execution on my part. But I felt like, I was due my opportunity and my time. So when I joined Google, I think Google saw me as a relatively junior person, despite my kind of 10 to 15 years of experience prior. Um, but I saw myself as someone who was capable of a lot more and, and, and kind of, you know, to go with my arrogance, deserving of a lot more. So when I walked through the doors of Google, I, um, I sort of act as if, 
right? I sort of felt like, okay, well, I'm going to come in here and I am going to act as if I'm a leader and sort of focus on really helping this organization be scrappy and be more startupy and be able to do all the things that I've wanted to do, but never had the resources able to do. And, and again, Vita, we can talk about this as well, uh, maybe at another time, but back in 2006, the startup community of Australia was non-existent. Mm. You look at venture capital that is today, I would have killed for that level of funding and opportunity that was there. There was no VCs, there was barely angel investment. If you had an idea, unless your company was already making 20, 30, $40 million in revenue, there was not a single person that was looking to invest. Um, so Google was my opportunity to be a startup CEO, but have the funding and support and access to talent that I never had before. So I just got into the company and I started to act like an entrepreneur and I kicked off new projects and I built things. And um, uh, I was on the founding and team that built Google Drive. And then we built another product called Google Keep. And it was uh, out of Australia. And then we built all the mobile products um, on Android and iOS at the time where there was a lot of debate as whether we should build native applications versus web applications. And so I led that charge at the company around the native focus and actually had to contract out our iOS apps initially because we had no expertise within the company to do iOS development. So I was one of the first to be at Google to actually build native iOS apps and that led a charge across. So I just... Um, Google was a really great opportunity for me to do a lot of the things that I never had the capital and resources to do. Uh, and then in large organizations, there tends to be sort of a void of, um, leadership may not be the right word, but a, a willingness to take risks and make decisions. It's very easy to say no and not get in trouble, but it's very easy to say yes and get in trouble. And so I didn't have a lot to lose. So I just made decisions and said yes. And, and again, I was fortunate that a lot of those things worked out and that kind of helped pave my path. Hey, we'll be back to the episode in a moment. I really, really wanted to let you in on a secret. Keep this to yourself. We're working on a special series across our Curiosity Center products. We've locked in 60% of our sponsors. And if you and your company want to partner, reach out before it's too late. My details are in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Before we jumped on air, we talked about nature versus nurture in a different mm. example, but I'd be curious in that, if we just talk about maybe the first year you were at Google to build those foundations and that momentum and those relationships, would you, in hindsight, would you say it was nurture or nature? When I joined Google, I think there was an aspect of me that didn't love the idea of working for a large organization long-term and felt that the entrepreneurial scrappy part of me uh, was going to always want to go back and start another business. So really what I needed was a few years on the resume so that when I went and raised capital the next time, they could be like, oh, this guy at least was at Google for a few years, so maybe we can actually invest. So I knew my period at Google was going to be short-lived. And so I had a mental philosophy, which, which was, I'm either going to get fired or promoted. There's no reason to do anything in between. So I wasn't given the space and I definitely wasn't worried about my probation. I walked in, um, again, with a little bit of, of confidence or arguably arrogance around I'm kind of better than what my resume says I am. Give me an opportunity. And I just sort of found those opportunities and, and work. The one thing that worked in my favor massively was uh, all of my leadership, the people I reported into were all in the US, right? But all of the people that did the work that was under my direction or my peers were all here in Australia. So I could effectively run as if I was in charge and people in the US wouldn't know. And the people here wouldn't know otherwise. They're like, well, he's acting like he's in charge. So we might as well believe him because no one else here is running it like we're in charge. And he says, don't worry about the US. So we won't and we'll just trust him. And the people in the US, I'd be like, don't worry, I got it. And they'd be like, okay, great. We've got other things to worry about. So I think that gave me the space. So working out of a distributed office absolutely helped me. I think if I was based in, in California when I started at Google, I may have had a different path. Uh, but yeah, I joined with the expectation of getting promoted or getting fired. And I just started to build products, make decisions and, and have that sort of confidence. And uh, again, uh, a lot of luck, a lot of right place, right time, a lot of surrounding myself with very smart people who this time I was smart enough to, to listen to and uh, able to pave that path that way. If I extend that question, I think over your Google career, you've, had, you've been in 14 roles or maybe 14 <laughs> teams. So that means you've done a lot of finish one thing, go into a new team, build trust, build credibility, build relationships. And this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about and I have in my own career is 
how do you do that early on? Because I, I believe, and, and maybe you've got a different view, and if it is, please tell me, is setting those foundations in the first six months of a team or role, whether you're a leader or individual contributor. What have you learned about the different roles you've done about those early days of setting the right foundations, either for the team to succeed or for you to succeed and to build that trust with the broader organization? It's, it's a really simple playbook, Vinit, and it's, it's so obvious and uh, I don't know why more people don't do it. So the first one you've described already, which I'll just emphasize, which is um, relationships. We all, humans buy from humans. Humans work for humans. Humans are inspired and motivated by humans. And at the end of the day, as much as we try not to think about it, if we like each other, we enjoy working together, we have a much higher probability of wanting to find common ground to be able to move forward. I remember taking a negotiation class and at the end of it, the instructor said, look, if you take nothing else from this, when you start a negotiation, ask the person on the other side of the table how their weekend was and about their family. Because they are much more likely to want to find a place to come on common ground with you if they actually don't see it as losing if you win. If they see you winning as them also winning, you will have a much better outcome. And so for me, from the very beginning, I have invested a lot of time. What I say to my team is, I fire myself from my job and I hire myself as the person I'm trying to work with and understand from their perspective, what are my priorities? What are my motivations? And how do I go ahead and, and uh, really do something that helps them? And so I think relationships, first and foremost, a lot of people are like, well, you just got to get to the point. You got to be direct. You got, but you have to build first that foundation of trust and respect and honesty in order to then have the debate on top of it. So, uh, the time and effort you put into relationships is probably the most important thing. The second thing I do, and I'm, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you a, a two-minute story, but it's one of my favorite, and I really think it's going to be um, very insightful, hopefully, uh, as to sort of how I think about my career and about product. When I was in my 20s, I went to this event that was actually held by Stephen Covey, and um, it was in this large auditorium. It was kind of in this bowels of these university, uh, and um, he walked up on stage. There's a few thousand of us in this room. And he said, everyone stand up, close your eyes, and point north. And again, we were in this basement. We had no idea where we were. We all sort of stood up and thought about it for a few seconds and then closed our eyes and, and just pointed. And he said, okay, open your eyes. And uh, we all opened our eyes. And uh, not surprisingly, you had, let's call it 3,000 people pointing in 3,000 different directions as to where they thought north was. And he said, okay, put your hands down. I want you to uh, close your eyes again. And if you are confident, if you are certain, you know which direction north is, I want you to point. Otherwise, keep your hands down. So I kept my hands down and he said, okay, open your eyes. So I opened my eyes and there was about 10% of people now confidently pointing north, about 300 people. And they were pointing in 300 different directions. And he said, this is essentially how every organization works. You have all of the employees who aren't sure what their priorities are, why they're working on what they're working on. But if you ask them, they'll give you an answer because they're forced to, but they're not really sure. But worse, you have leadership who is confident which direction that they should be going in and why we're doing what we're doing. But amongst themselves, they also are not aligned. So my answer to your question beyond relationships is alignment. So the first and most important thing I do with any product team I work with is I complete one sentence and it's from Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. It is for these users who have this problem, my product provides this solution that unlike these alternatives, we are different and unique in this way. That's it. And if you can't explain to your team and to your investors and to your customers what problem you're solving for who, and how you're solving it and why it's different from the other options and ideally why it's better, then you shouldn't be building anything. And so the thing that I've done is I've taken on new teams or I've built products is I've always tried to make sure first and foremost, we bring everyone together and we have a very, very clear vision of what we're doing and who we're doing it for. Because then breaking ties, making decisions, all of that is actually quite easy once you all agree on what you're doing and who you're doing it for. And I wonder, did these behaviors in your leadership evolution evolve over those 14 teams you've been in? For example, when in your first couple of teams in 2009, 
to 2010-11, were you figuring these things out and then you unlocked it as you built momentum and inner confidence? Back to your point earlier about because you had those failed experiences, you probably were looking for confidence um, building abilities internally in your own, in your own mind early on? Yeah, so a lot changed. I definitely continued to learn and still continue to learn every day in my career by virtue of surrounding myself with people that are far smarter than I am and, and uh, I'm very fortunate to work with. I also think the importance of uh, working across different markets and segments and industries uh, has both helped me but also given me a great learning curve. So I've gone from, you know, when I first joined Google to working on enterprise products and understanding what does it mean to go talk to a big company that says, yes, I would like Google Documents to work the same as Microsoft Word, please. And and sort of saying, okay, but I'm not really going to be innovating or giving you a really new, interesting product if all I do is copy this thing. So what if I give you collaboration and all these other things? And they're like, yeah, I actually just really need seven column documents, please. And so you sort of learn, oh gosh, okay, in dealing with enterprise, it's actually very different than how do you go and approach a consumer segment. Scale is a major area. So I've been fortunate enough to build a couple of products from scratch that have zero users on day one. Google Photos and Google Drive were brand new products. Um, and then I had uh, the fortune of taking over uh, leadership and ownership of a product like Chrome that has billions of users. And then you think, oh, well, I'm going to make this change and only 1% of my, of my users is going to be unhappy. Well, you're like, okay, that's 30 million people. So, okay, maybe I can't make this change. And then how do you deal with innovators? So I think I have definitely adapted my style massively on the depend, depending on what product it is, who the customer is, what, where in the life cycle we are, what the scale is. Um, but fundamentally, at its most basic level, the relationships that I've invested internally, externally, as well as understanding why we exist, what product we're trying to build, for who we're trying to build. Because at the end of the day, you want to bring joy to customers. You want to bring love to customers, happiness. You're solving some problem. You're giving them something that they, they benefit from. Bringing things down to that fundamental basis, that part is consistent across everything I've done. Let's double click on the products you built and you just touched on some of them and often you've done the zero to one and I was doing some reading earlier and I think in the tech industry, nothing's more iconic than building something that reaches a billion users and Google have done that with nine products and you've played a role in three of them, Google Chrome, Photos and Drive and I understand Photos was your first product that you really built and led. Can you talk about that? How did you do it and, and, and what was that experience like? Yeah, so Google Photos was definitively a defining moment in my career. Um, we were in Australia for about four years working for Google, and I was given the opportunity to move to the U.S. to take on a role within Google+. And you may recall Google+, Plus uh, was a product that was not one of Google's best in terms of identifying a real user need and solving that problem. It was a product that we built because Google needed it, but it didn't actually solve a real end user problem. So I joined this team and was responsible for the photos aspect of that product. And what I quickly found was there was an incredible amount of talent, a lot of brilliant people who had built some really great capabilities and really great technology, but it was packaged really poorly as part of this social network that we were trying to deliver. As an example, we created a backup product that allowed everyone to be able to save all of the photos that they had on their phone in the cloud the challenge was when you do it as part of a social network, people are very afraid that when they're backing up their private content, it's immediately going to end up being shared with all of their friends. And so the idea here was how do we take all of this capability and technology and package it in a way that solved a real user problem? And uh, a small group of us that were there in California identified kind of three major user issues that I think really resonated. One was people need to save all the photos that they have that they take so that they lose their phone, they don't lose their memories. Two, it's incredibly difficult to find these photos when you're looking for them. We now take hundreds of photos of a sunset. We used to take 24 photos on a roll of film. So now you've got all these photos. How do you find photos and memories you care about? And then three, folks never reminisce anymore. You go on this beautiful holiday, you take all these photos and videos, but you never actually go back and look at them or ever get reminded of these moments. So we sort of identified these three major user problems and uh, kind of made a pitch 
to uh, to Sundar and some of the executive team after some of the changes were landing with Google Plus, that was why not actually build a product that was much more about private photo management and for individuals, not about sharing and social network, but about managing, reminiscing, and finding your photos. And so from that, we were able to build Google Photos. We were given an opportunity that I think was um, incredible uh, in the sense that it was a small group of us. We were relatively early in our careers, by Google standards at least, to be given the responsibility and opportunity. And we built that product in, in a year and a half uh, and launched it at Google I.O. in 2015. Uh, and that was fantastic because I think that to me really cemented the fact that we, you know, if you focus on the fundamentals of finding user problems and building great experiences. And at Google, you look at things that only Google can provide. So only Google provide the, the scale to upload all of these photos. Only Google can provide the machine learning and AI to be able to understand and identify these photos in a way that it can show me a photo of my daughter the day she was born to when she's 14 years old and every photo in between without me ever having to tag it. And so it was a remarkable, uh, remarkable launch for us and it went incredibly well. And I was supposed to go to the US for only two years um, but it got extended to five because we continued to make some progress. Uh, Google Photos hit three bill, excuse me, a billion users in three years, uh, which was a huge milestone at the time, one of the fastest growing products um, in history. Uh, and that kind of just led on to more opportunities from there. And I also understand at that time when you were doing photos, you had sort of leadership responsibility across product design and engineering, right? That's right. So that was one of the unusual parts of it that I really liked was that uh, Sundar was very good about giving me end-to-end -end responsibility around all aspects of the product. So design, operations, uh, product, engineering, uh, all of the key components that you needed to really pull this product together. Uh, and, that, and that helped a lot. And I really do believe that if you want to move quickly, you need to be able to make decisions. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have at large organizations, uh, Google and otherwise, is that you tend to be consensus-driven when you get a number of people at sort of these positions in one room. And so, yeah, being able to be in that position of a CEO, essentially, and be able to make those decisions quickly, I think really uh, sort of separated us from the rest of the type of products that were being built at Google and allowed us to do something, you know, in a year and a half that would have otherwise taken four or five years. And you touched earlier on getting on more responsibility post photos. I'd be curious, what was that like? Did you have the optionality of different products? How did they settle on Chrome, Chrome OS, and, and also I think the communications part of the business? Yes. It was a very interesting time, and I consider myself incredibly fortunate. You know, there's a lot of right place, right time, I think, uh, in a lot of uh, people's careers, and I certainly benefited from that. So we now had reached the point that we'd been in the U.S. for nearly five years, and, you know, my wife had uh, kindly agreed to come out for two, and the kids were getting to the point now where we were going to settle down one place or the other, and we always agreed we wanted to raise them in Australia. So it was one of those scenarios where it finally came down to, look, I need to go back home. And I thought when I made that decision to return back to Australia that my career essentially would kind of stall. Um, and they would say, okay, got it. Yeah, but it doesn't make mm -hmm. sense for you to lead a global product from Australia. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite happened. And again, I credit this to, to Sundar and, and his leadership and, and some of the others at the org who essentially said, look, if you're willing to do it and you believe that you can do as good of a job over there as you can do here, uh, then go nuts. And, and not only did they say go back and, and continue to lead Google Photos, they said, we actually have a few other products that are suffering similar fates where, you know, they need a little bit of an injection of new innovative product thinking and sort of deliberate opinionated product thinking in particular. One was in our communication suite where we did something similar, where we built a product to compete with WhatsApp, which again, didn't quite have uh, clarity on what user problem we were solving, more that Google just wanted a communications product in that space. And so there was a product called Allo, which you know I took over and immediately uh, sunset uh, in favor of investing in our messages and dialer infrastructure on Android, which is where we had the ability to deliver really great product experiences. And then uh, Chrome and Chrome OS were two products that, again, were in very different areas of their life cycle, but were both products that I think historically had sort of built a user base on a foundation and done incredibly well. I mean, you'll, you'll know that you know, Chrome is, was, was Sundar's baby, and, and he was the one who originally built the product. And so for him to hand that to me and say, okay, now go and figure out how to get another billion users on top of this and create even more growth and more love was, was a big deal. And I think it's because when you build something that's that 
used by so many people, you get into an innovator's dilemma where it is actually difficult to innovate and try new things. We talked about it earlier, right? You impact 1% and you're infecting 30 million people. So, um, so that was an opportunity to really inject some new product thinking and innovation into the experiences. So yeah, so I came back to Australia and now all of a sudden had several thousand people working for me, a multi-billion dollar mm. P&L. You know, it was, it was daunting to be working on a product that actually del- if, you know, meaningfully impacted the stock price because so much of Google's revenue comes through Google Chrome. And so if we launched products or experiences you know, that we had to be, we had to look at sort of making sure we were delivering the great right, right thing for the user, but at the same time, we're cognizant of any impact that that was going to have to financials. So it was a really fantastic opportunity and, and something that I was uh, really excited and proud of. I've got so many follow-up questions to that, but I think the biggest one that I would love to get your reflections on is, you mentioned earlier about this customer obsession and customer love, and I've been a Chrome user for many years. I'd be curious, what was the biggest difference in the product DNA from your perspective going from Photos to Chrome and the broader suite? Photos is a product that you can fall in love with. I can send someone a video just unprompted. Their phone can buzz and it can say, they grow up so fast. And you hit play on it, and it's a 90-second video to some beautiful music that shows photos and videos of your daughter from the day she was born and gradually growing up through these photos and videos until a photo that you took yesterday when she was 11 years old. And without fail, many parents will cry when they watch that video as they see their own child growing up right in front of their eyes with these photos and videos that they haven't seen in years and brought back to life. So Photos was a very emotional product. It really tugged at the heartstrings and got two things that you cared really deeply about. Chrome was a very utilitarian product. It was one of the most used products in the world because it solved a very important problem. And that problem was a thousand different problems, whether it was online banking or checking your email or watching a video on YouTube, Chrome was the front end to all of these things. And Chrome's product perspective was very much about let's help you get to the thing you're trying to get to and get out of the way as much as possible. If you want to go and watch a video, let's get you to watching a video. If you're doing online banking, let's make that as secure and amazing as possible. If you're looking for something, let's help you find it as quickly as possible. If you're doing email, let's make it as responsive and secure and as fast as possible. And so Chrome's product experience was much more about getting you to a place and making that product and experience as effective as possible, whereas Photos DNA was very uh, very personal. So they were very, very different product experiences. But again, fundamentally, they come back to the same thing, which is you're providing something for a user that they either directly know that they need or that they want, but and they haven't, they haven't asked for yet. Uh, but when you give it to them, they say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've lived without this. And in both cases, you just have to come back to those fundamentals. So you went from running Chrome, Chrome OS communications, billion dollar P&L, spotlight on you in the company to working on a special project, which you've been working on in the more recent memory, which which in my view, sort of going back to a blank canvas in, in a way, going back to your roots where you started at Google and your various startups prior to that. Touch on that, Anil, I'd be curious, what was that adjustment like from running Chrome to to being in a blank canvas with a special project in Fitbit. Um, yeah, so I'll tell you the story there with the journey because I think it's it's helpful in terms of the importance of walking the walk. Um, I, I have the uh, pleasure of mentoring a lot of folks and one of the things that I say to all of them is that as, as humans, we we likely have many of the same values, right? We We care about a lot of the same things. Where things become interesting is how we choose to prioritize and live those values. So the simple example I often give is you can say, I value family and I value honesty. And then if your child gets into trouble and and does something illegal, do you value honesty to the point that you take them to the police station and turn them in? Or do you value family to the point that you sort of just say, hey, come home. We're not going to tell any about it, but I'm going to, you know, I'll make sure that you learn the lesson sort of here at home on your own. And, and so it's that prioritization of values. So I reached a point in my career when I said my values 
were family. My values were health. My values were waking up every day and loving my job and feeling like I'm making a really big impact and, and working with people that I really care deeply about. And then when I looked at my actual day-to-day, I thought, well, I'm traveling a lot. I'm working in the middle of the night. I'm spending very little time actually building these memories with my family. I am not putting enough time and attention into my health as a result of these things. And it turns out that while I do feel like I'm making impact at my work and I have the pleasure of working with some brilliant people, I actually don't love my job because what I started in my career as my superpower was building things. And what I've done now is become an organizational leader of other people who build things. And my job is to help them be successful. And I'd reached a point where I realized that, well, what am I truly valuing? And was it fame? Was it fortune? Was it you know, an opportunity to have ambition? Was it arrogance? I don't know. But I realized that I was living a life that was very incongruent from what I said my values were. And so it was that prioritization for me where I said, okay, well, what would it look like if I really truly prioritized family health and a desire to wake up every morning and just build things? And, um, and so I had this moment when I went to, I went to Sundar and I essentially said to him, look, I think I, I think I need to be done here and I need to wrap up and I do a year transition, hand off everything and, and basically sort of sail into the sunset. And, um, and, and he said, no, he's, you know, apparently quitting at Google is a two-way thing in some scenarios. <laughs> and he and I, I didn't realize that, but I said, well, wait, we, we, but we both don't have to agree here. Uh, but he said, no, I think I, uh, you know, what do you want? And I, and I said to him, well, look, I want to work with a local team in Australia. I just want to build products and I want to have autonomy again. I want to be like a CEO where I run product engineering and design and I just sort of am able to make the decisions and do it with a local team. Uh, and he said, great. So I transitioned for a year. I took a few months off with my long service leave. And I came back to Google thinking I wasn't going to find a project that I was going to be excited about and be able to work on. Google, by virtue of being this really large, amazing, talented organization, has sort of this lick the cookie problem, which yeah, I don't know if you've heard this expression, but it's um, it's when everyone is working on something in such a way that any one idea you have, they can say, oh, I'm already doing that, right? It's sort of the lick, the, look at, lick every cookie in the jar and then put the cookie back. And then so every, when, when you go to get the cookie, someone says, oh, no, I've already, I've already licked that one. That one's mm-hmm. mine. And so I thought, well, no matter what, I, look at our company, right? We build hardware, we build software, we build you know, all of these amazing different products and experiences from maps to YouTube to cloud. Am I really going to come up with a new idea that some executive doesn't say, no, that's already not in my roadmap. Um, But we had just closed the acquisition of Fitbit and health was a really interesting area for me. And, um, and so I proposed a new product kind of in the Fitbit space um, that I got James Park, who's the CEO and uh, managing director and founder of Fitbit, really excited about, and Sundar and, and Rick Osterloh, our, our head of uh, devices and services, excited about. And yeah, amazingly enough, they gave me an opportunity to get exactly what I wanted. So I'm now running you know, a small team in Australia with full autonomy, building a new product and experience under the Fitbit umbrella, and I'm loving it. And it, and it is very much back to basics of that zero to one. And kudos to you from speaking to people that know you well. I understand it's a big deal for Google to give you that 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 team based out of Australia. So I know you're very humble and you might not mention that. So I thought I should pretext that for the audience who might not be aware that that's actually quite a big deal. Is that, is that right? It's, uh, look, I think uh, we as a company do things ultimately at the end of the day that we believe will benefit our end users. And I like to think that Google has given me the opportunity to do what I'm doing here and given me the opportunity to do it in Australia because they fundamentally believe that I will build a product that is loved by end users, right? So I don't think it's happening because they like me. I don't think it's happening because they think I'm a nice guy. Uh, I think it's happening because I've been fortunate enough to be able to deliver on some products and experiences (laughs) that have done well. And I think they're expecting me to do it again. So, I, you know, there's a little bit of pressure to, to actually make it happen. But I'm, you know, walking into mm. the office every day happier than I've ever been in my life because I'm getting to work with a close group of people that I really love and respect. And, uh, and we're w- working on something that I'm really, really excited about. And I'm looking forward to, uh, yeah, showing the world what we've been working on soon enough. I can't wait. And I'd love to zoom out, Anil, and talk about Google for a couple of minutes. We've touched on the specific products you built. And 
I haven't worked at Google, but a lot of people that work at Google or online commentary talk about why the product function is king or queen within Google. And that's been a unique sort of differentiator for Google versus perhaps some of the other players. Can you shed some light on how and why Google puts so much focus on product compared to sales, marketing, engineering, design? I don't know that we put more focus on it. I think it just tends to get highlighted because it's different. We put a lot of focus on sales, marketing, design, and I think an appropriate amount, and I don't want to make it seem like we're diminishing those roles because they're incredibly important and Google would not have its success without them. I think the reason product gets called out is because Google does it a little bit uniquely, which is its philosophy, for better or for worse, has always been if you build a great product that users love, everything else will follow. So normally organizations say, okay, great, let's build a product or experience that's based on how the company is going to make money. And then once we figure that out, we can go ahead and design the product appropriately and we'll arm our salespeople to go out there and talk to folks. And if they're not selling it, let's pivot the product based on what the sales feedback is. And product ends up becoming sort of a response to what the market is asking for. Whereas Google has had the benefit of being able to say, don't worry about cost. Don't worry about revenue. Focus on the best product experience that you can deliver. And if you deliver a product that is loved by a billion people every single day, we will figure out how to make that a business. And I think that's the reason it gets highlighted is it's a very unique approach. So, so the company cares deeply at its core about innovation at a technology level and then applying that innovation to solve really me- big, meaningful products, problems, excuse me, that users are facing. That is at its core. Our, everything after that, how you sell it, how we, how we make money, how we market it, all of those pieces are all in um, service of this idea of really great, innovative new technology like self-driving cars or machine learning and AI, and then applied to really interesting problems like how users manage their photos or how do we you know, help uh, cure a particular disease in, in a part of the world. Like we, we focus on the problem and then think everything else will sort of figure itself out. Part two to that is metrics. And, and because you've done the zero to one, you're sort of a de facto founder within the bigger organization, to put it to put it in, in, in simple terms. And a lot of listeners of this show are founders and they are building a product that they feel can also get to a billion users at some point. What are some of the metrics that you feel are critical to monitor that you've done in your previous roles and you do now in this Fitbit product role? Uh, So this is one of my favorite topics as we uh, discuss product is even you and I sort of have fallen into this trap. We talk about billion user products, right? We talk about top line revenue and growth. The reality is growth is sort of the third metric that you should care about only after you've figured out the first two. Uh, First and foremost, you have to get retention right. You have to build a product that users love and keep continuing to use. So one of the biggest issues and errors that I see entrepreneurs make is they focus on the top of the funnel. I'm just going to keep growing more and more and more users. And they don't focus actually on the bottom of the funnel, which is how many of those users continue to use my product after one week, three weeks, five weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, et cetera. So retention cohorts by far are the most important thing, in my opinion, when it comes to building products and looking at metrics. Don't worry about your top line growth until you know that you don't have a leaky funnel. And then the second one is engagement, which is how often are your users engaging and using your product and finding value, right? So if you if you build a tax service, if you're TurboTax, well, your engagement is pretty clearly once a year, right? But if you build TikTok, your engagement is likely every single day. And the question is, for your product, what is the appropriate amount of engagement that you want? And again, first, make sure that people who use their product love it and come back. And then the second point is, well, let's make sure they come back as often as you can continue to deliver value for them. So this is one of the areas I was most proud of with Google Photos, which is even though we built a billion user product, The reality is what we built was a really sticky product where once people started to build it, use it, excuse me, they stuck with it and kept using it 
And then they kept coming back to it more and more and more. So we were able to get to a billion users faster than any other product, not because necessarily we'd done anything different, but because we only needed half of what people put in at the top of the funnel to get to a billion at the bottom. Most people had to put 3 billion people to the top of the funnel because so many of them leaked out. We could put one and a half billion and still get a billion at the bottom of the funnel because most of our folks stayed and re-engaged. So retention is number one, engagement is number two, and then number three, focus on growth. It reminds me of a line that I'm a big fan of is make a few people very happy versus making a lot of people semi-happy. And you could replace the word happy people with customers. Yeah, I think I think that's very, very right, is you have to be deliberate and opinionated in what you do. And you want to make sure that whoever you've identified as your user base, that you make them happy. When you say that sentence, it reminds me of when we were building Google Photos. I made a very conscious effort to uh, communicate to everyone that our product was for people who use their smartphone as their primary device for taking photos, which you'd think today is not controversial, but you know, in um, back in uh, sort of uh, 2015, it, it was still an idea that a lot of people were carrying around DSLRs. And a lot of our executive team at Google were carrying around mm-hmm. DSLRs. So every time they would come to me and say, hey, Anil, I took this really beautiful photo on my $3,000 camera in RAW. Why does, your, why does your app not work? And I would say, because it's not for you. We didn't build this product for you, right? Uh, And so it was very much about (laughs) identifying who your user base was and making them really happy versus, as you say, try to cater to a large group of people and make them semi-happy. I want to zoom out and you mentioned about success at 18. What is success at 50? What what would fulfill you in life at 50? Uh, I, I don't know, to be very honest. One of the things that I've been trying to do is be a lot more in the now. Uh, a very good friend of mine uh, had me read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, right? For, and for those of uh, the listeners who haven't uh, read that book or are familiar with it, it's a very simple book in concept. It basically says, the only moment that matters is now. The past is nothing more than a, mo- a bunch of now moments that have already happened that you have zero ability to change. And the future is a bunch of now moments that have not yet happened which you have no ability to actually influence other than what you do exactly right now. So the only thing that matters is this exact moment and what it is that you choose to do right now. And as I've started to think a lot more about that, I've realized, okay, well, sure, I can have goals, right? I can have a goal for 50, 60, 70, and my success will look no different than anyone else's success, I think, which is really surrounded by great people, people of friends and family that I love, investing the time that I have with those people, um, you know, focusing on my health, focusing on the things that make me happy, uh, doing great things for the world, whether that be through philanthropy or whether that through sort of product engagements and some combination of both, mentoring entrepreneurs. There's a lot of things that give me energy and that I'm excited about and moving into the sort of this next stage of my life. I'm on my own personal journey of what does happiness look like? Why are we on this earth? And, you know, what is it that I should be doing in this next stage of my life? Should I be uh, going to Tibet and, and joining, a, you know, uh, a Buddhist monastery? Should I be, you know, doing other things here in Australia? What is, I, I don't know the answer, to be honest. But what I've learned is the answer is just do a really great job today. And uh, so to me, uh, success at 50 means that I've got six more years where I've lived every single day to the fullest with people I love, doing things that make me happy and hopefully making a positive contribution to the world. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And hopefully this interview makes you happy that you've decided you've agreed to do it. So. <laughs> we're, we're off to a great start. It's a great day, Vinit. <laughs> We've got a few minutes left, Anil, so why don't we close with a quick rapid-fire round? Uh, I'd love if you could give short answers. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. Is there one investment you've made in your life that you consider the best non-financial? Family, my wife and my kids, hands down. Is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? I think I'd like to learn to be more present. 
So not only be in the now, but I have a tendency to want to multitask, do lots of different things. You know, I was watching my kids do arts and crafts. And even when they're doing arts and crafts, they have to have a TV show on in the background. And it's just, it's just the human mind, I think, is getting to the point that we feel the need to do multiple things and be productive in that way. So I think I'd like to learn to actually dial it the other way and be really intentional about anything I'm doing and be very, very present in that moment. Is there one person or quote that inspires you? Uh, I'm going to cheat. I'll give you two um, because they're the two quotes mm-hmm. that I live my life by now. One is from Seven Habits mm-hmm. of Highly Effective People, which is, let make sure I get this right. It's between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is the power to choose our response. And uh, as I mentioned, as a child, I wasn't very good uh, in many dimensions. But one of the other things uh, that I didn't touch on is I had a terrible temper. I would, you know, if my parents got upset with me, I'd walk up into my bedroom and I would literally punch the wall. There's multiple holes in the gyp rock in my bedroom from where I would just get angry and I would punch the wall. And that was one of the things that I wanted to change when I had that moment I described as a teenager. And um, that was one of the things that I learned is that no matter what it is that you are responding or reacting to, there is always a space between that instigator and what your response is. And only you have the power to choose what you do in that space and therefore how you respond. Uh, The second quote is, um, I don't know who it's attributed to. I read it in Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, um, which is sort of this responsibility uh, fault fallacy. And it's the, it's the idea that um, it may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility. And I think too often in life, and I'm guilty of this, we look at all of these things that have happened to us, and I would be so much more successful if these bad things didn't happen, or I can't believe I got sick, or I can't believe this you know, very unfortunate thing happened to me. And all of them are justified. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of things in the world that a lot of things people go through. But at the end of the day, sort of from the construct of the power of now, and you can't change anything that's already happened, um, even if it's not your fault, it is absolutely your responsibility. And taking kind of the action of what do I need to do to be able to make the most positive output of this that I can and really be able to be happy, uh, love the people around me and make a positive contribution to the world. Like that's for me what it always comes down to no matter what. And last one, is there one thing you want to share that I haven't asked you? No, I don't think there is. I think uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm grateful. I think uh, most folks like myself enjoy talking about themselves. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to spend an hour to talk about myself. And I just will say thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I guess maybe I will. The one thing that comes to mind, by the way, that, that was me just talking to think and process. I do that when I don't know an answer to a question. I'll just talk mm. till I eventually come up. So now I do have an answer to your question, <laughs> which please, is, please. Um, which is uh, surround yourself with amazing people. Uh, uh, mm. I know you have interviewed some very, very successful people on this podcast. I'm honored to be one of the people that you've interviewed. And I'm sure almost everyone that you've interviewed will echo my sentiment when I say that they would have never achieved their success or be where they are today if it wasn't for surrounding themselves with really smart, brilliant, capable, supportive people who they've learned from, that have mentored them, have encouraged them, and have supported them. So just make sure you have some really great people in your life, uh, and then you'll be able to accomplish and achieve great things. As I said earlier, the definition of a high fly for me is a relatable role model, not someone who's got a fancy title, and I think you live and breathe that every day. So thank you so much for making the time and i really appreciate you agreeing to do this and uh, and yeah wish you all the best and keep in touch likewise thank you for the opportunity and really enjoyed the conversation i hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be one percent better if you're enjoying the show i'd love to hear from you you can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly by email or any of our social media pages all links are in the show notes talk soon